welcome to the Data Talks. This is episode nine, what is digitalization? And if you arrive here for the first time, I ask you to go and look our other episodes in our website, data-talks.uni-munster with ua.da. Or here are other, our other episodes in our uh, Spotify channel. Due to the social distance measures required by the coronavirus crisis, we witnessed an invasion of the digital in our lives. Suddenly, even those who are resisting, for example, asking for food through apps or working in digital environments, had no other choice than embrace digital. On the other side, small two big businesses had to quickly implement their digital vision or even to create one. Digitalization refers to adapting processes, either to adapt to digital communication or to create business models. In both of these views, it refers not to simply transform something analog into digital, but to create something new. However, what is created by digitalization layers up in existing societies with their rules, conflicts and inequalities. In this regard, the adaptation of existing organizations or new business models can help solve or intensify existing problems. What can we expect in terms of changes in activities, socialization and inclusion in the next few years? What does digitalization mean in 2022? To talk about that with us, we have today two special guests. From Germany, we have received today Professor Dr. Benedict Berger, Professor Berger holds the Chair of Digital Transformation and Society Department and Information Systems Institute from the University of Münster, and an institute which is associated with the European Research Center for Information Systems, ERCIS. His research interest addresses two topics, digital products, service, and digital transformation in the media industry, and the use, development, and management of information technology systems based on artificial intelligence and its consequences for companies, users in private and in professional contexts. He has a PhD degree in information systems and new media at the Ludwig Maximilians Universität in Munich and a master's degree in management at the University Mannheim. Professor Berger, thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much for the invitation um, and for the very kind and extensive introduction. Well, and from Brazil, it's my pleasure to receive here uh, Mr. Fabio Seni, coordinator at the Núcleo de Informação e Coordenação do Ponto BR, NIC.br, a center in charge of implementing the projects of Management Committee for the Internet in Brazil, the CGI. The surveys conducted by the center have supported the definition of Brazilian government strategies for digital inclusion, universal access to broadband, e-government and knowledge society development. Fabuceni is also a PhD candidate in political science at the University of Sao Paulo, has a master's degree in communication from the University of Brasilia, and he's a researcher in communication focusing on digital inequalities. Mr. Seni, thank you for being with us today. Hello, thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Okay, so uh, starting our discussion, uh, Benedict, you are a professor at the Department of Digital Transformation and Society. Uh, can you explain to us a little bit of more of your research? Yes, so um, 
first of all, you you mentioned a lot already. So I had until I came here, I had basically two research foci. So throughout my studies, I was very interested in the media industry and particularly in digital media and how digital media offerings could thrive because in the market, we always saw problems in how to finance digital media offerings. And that was basically my uh, initial research interest. So in, in that perspective, I got into touch with the digital transformation of the media industry. We looked at different revenue models, ways to monetize digital content, for instance, by paywalls in my a dissertation, I researched the possibility to combine content and commerce offerings online. So that was based, that's more or less uh, the, the first research focus I have. We also dive a little bit into different technologies. For instance, we, we did some studies on virtual reality. Um, so that's kind of the, the media use, media technology focus. And the second focus is on AI-based systems. So far, we mostly looked at how people use such systems. Two examples here. Uh, we researched how people make use of speech interaction. For instance, when they interact with voice assistants. And the second question or larger question that we um, looked into was whether people are willing to delegate tasks to AI-based systems, and we did this using the examples of robo-advisors. So whether people would delegate their um, management of their personal um, funds to a robo-advisor system. So that is what I brought to the table when I came here. And now, obviously, we continue to develop this. Um, on the one hand, we're looking more into the development of AI-based systems nowadays as well. And on the other hand, we will at my professorship look into the topic of digital work as this is connected with AI-based systems. So how these systems affect how we work and what we actually work. And this is, I think, also a very important topic from a societal perspective. Well, really, uh, really interesting. And at the same time, broad, uh, there is so many uh, things going on and really uh, thing, change, things are changing really fast. Uh, I, I can relate of uh, being a researcher in anything that has to do with technology. And I think Fabio also will agree with me that everything changes really fast. So <laughs> it's, it's uh, definitely a lot of work to do. And uh, Fabio, you work at uh, Nick.br, Nick.br, the research institute that investigates how society is using technology. So uh, can you explain a little bit more to us your work at Nick.br Nick and also uh, your PhD research that you are currently uh, about to deliver? Yes, thanks for, for the introduction. Uh, uh, my work at CETIC is, is uh, connected to uh, CETIC.br, which is a regional center on, on studies on the information society. So our main mission is to provide data, to provide statistics, to provide information on the access and use of internet in Brazil. We started by looking at individuals and companies, but nowadays we have more or less 10 nationwide projects covering areas such as government, civil society, 
and also areas like education, health, culture. So the idea is to have a very broad vision on how uh, the different policies and society and society in general is adopting ICTs. And of course, uh, along this these more than sixteen years of of CETIC, the the agendas were were changing. So nowadays we all we are also investigating how uh, artificial intelligence and big data and robotics in in companies. So we we also have to change the dy dynamically the agendas and, and the type of indicators we want to provide. But the idea is, is, is of the center is to really provide society with information and policymakers with information to decide and to uh, run better policies. So this is our main goal. And regarding my uh, specific PhD research, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm of course using this huge database of uh, produced by, by CETIC. So we have more than, along with uh, our national, national statistical office in Brazil, we have more than 20 years of, of data uh, on how Brazil is, is using the, the internet. So uh, my PhD takes advantage of this, this database. But my question is, I'm trying to give a new perspective to a very old question, in, in, in fact, which is it, it, it's presented in, in the very beginning of the discussion of, of the digitalization, which is, Will, will the, the digitalization and the use of internet uh, be a, a solution for, for solving problems and, and to include people in, and to improve their lives or, or will be, uh, or they will be only uh, reproducing uh, inequalities and, and structural inequalities that society has offline. So will the, uh, is there what are the, the dynamic relationship between uh, inequalities online and inequalities offline? So that's, this is my, my main question, and I'm taking advantage of all those data uh, in Brazil to understand uh, whether you can measure, in a sense, uh, what happened in, in the past and, and how are nowadays the, the structure of digital inequalities in the country. So this this to say a little first note on the, on the research. Well, thank you very much. And now we're starting uh, the discussion mainly. Uh, I have a question that um, goes a little bit for both of you. Uh, so digitalization is a concept that it's not new. I, I, uh, we, we, we have to have this idea that it's something quite modern, especially this is a word that we say a lot in Germany. I, I would say more, we, we say more digitalisierung than digitalisation for sure. Uh, and I found the articles in 2018 uh, that were talking about this already, or which seems another world <laughs> in terms of technology. In publications, maybe 2018 is not so uh, old, but for, for technology, it's quite old, especially having a pandemic in the middle. So, uh, and these articles were mentioning basically that digitalization refers to processes, that, as I said in the beginning, uh, it stands uh, really differentiate between digitization, digitalization, and digital transformation. I would like to to ask you how do you think that this concept is still, especially Professor Berger, but also for Fabio, um, uh, Benedict, and also Fabio. Do you think that this uh, this concept of digitalization it still works in two thousand twenty two? or with the, the increase of use of uh, artificial intelligence, for example, uh, this concept looks a little bit old. What do you would have to say about this? 
Well, there were a couple of interesting points here. So first, uh, you mentioned the language differences, which I find quite interesting. Obviously, I don't know nothing about uh, this in Portuguese, but comparing English and German, in English, we have digitization and digitalization. And in German, we only have digitalisierung. But uh, so English is a little more fine-grained here, which is helpful because we can basically differentiate three different steps, the ones you mentioned. So digitization just means taking something that is uh, analog and transferring it into a digital object. So that can be, usually it's about information, um, documents, this kind of thing. Um, digitalization then means that we use digital technologies to improve the way we are currently doing things. So I can, uh, for instance, become faster in terms of a certain process. If I digitalize this process, let me stick with the media industry. If I uh, want to, um, if I'm working at a radio station and I'm uh, producing a piece and I'm, I have to cut uh, all the audio files, then it's much faster to do this in a digital way than to do it uh, using analog means. And the third step, is digital transformation, which means that we start to do things differently or doing different things all over. So we don't, for instance, we don't produce a radio program anymore, but we are now producing a podcast that you can uh, listen to on demand anytime because it's stored on a server and you can request it whenever you want. So that's a totally different concept from what we did before producing kind of a radio program, right? So that is digital transformation. And I think, so coming back to your question, whether this uh, concept still works, I'm not sure if it's a matter of whether it works or not. Uh, it's ongoing, it's, it's ubiquitous. Um, of course, it's progressing. So more and more uh, things, industries, markets, products, services get digitalized. Um, and I don't think it has uh, lost any, um, the concept has lost any importance by now. Although we are stepping up the ladder or more and more organizations are stepping up the ladder I just described. I think uh, I ask, I start to, when, when we do the programs with, uh, uh, around the concept, I usually start making this question because um, I do think there is a lot of idealization, a lot of normative behind uh, concept, especially when we talk about technology. Uh, so I, my, my original field research is uh, digital democracy, and there was a lot of expectation over digital democracy. And so I like to make always this question because I think, are we still talking about the same thing that we were talking about three years ago? And I think this is a good opportunity that I have to ask really intelligent people about it. Yeah, it's perfectly <laughs> fine. So it's good to, to establish the base terms before we engage in a discussion. And uh, Fabio, so uh, in NICBR, you mentioned already, you have uh, this amazing data uh, with 20 years. I actually, I was going to ask you another thing, but before that, if you also can ask, ask uh, when you answer my question, if you can answer if this data is available uh, for researchers, uh, especially in Brazil, because most of people doesn't know what, where to find this data. So how could, could they find it if it's already on uh, Transparency Ativa and 
is already on demand for researchers. But I also would like to ask you, how do you see that uh, the, the, the digitalization uh, changed in the last years in Brazil and if, in South America? I saw you, you Nick Berry recently published a report about Mercosul frente a mudanças tecnológicas. It would be really nice to hear this from you. Thank you. Now, uh, in, in general, I, I agree with, with Benedict on the idea that it's an ongoing concept. You know? so, and I think uh, when you go to the history of how people mention those processes, like when you had, uh, when you used to talk about cyber things and then we used about internet and now digital. So all the, tracking all this, the history of the concept is important to see in, in a sense, what are we talking about? So in a sense that I think, uh, I think now nowadays and uh, thinking about why, uh, why it matters né, to understand those types of process, I think I would say that we have, uh, I would say that at least, at least three types of, of issues that we, we might want to consider when, when talking about digitalization. One of them is that I think nowadays internet is a fundamental resource or, or a primary good or or if you if you like a right a, a new type of human right. So I think it's very difficult nowadays to to say that you can be a fully a citizen in a, in our societies without a connection or access to the internet. So I, I think this is this is a this is quite new because recently United Nations recognized recognized this 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 role of internet, but I do think it's important to mention that normatively we can, uh, we all agree that uh, it's impossible to not to be, to be out of this process. So why, this is why digital inequalities are, I think are so important. But as Professor Berger mentioned, uh, digital is also enabler to other rights. So it's, it's interesting because you, you, you can see the, the internet and, and ICTs in quite all types of policies, social policies, education, health, uh, social assistance. And so it's important to, to mention that uh, nowadays you can, you can use the, 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 this tool to, to enable all other results. And finally, I think that thinking about skills and, 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 and the idea that you acquire some types of skills that are new, totally new from what we have uh, in the past, I think nowadays, uh, those skills are awarded by the labor market, by the society. So you need to have uh, also to think about digital skills and, and capability of doing, uh, of uh, having the, those opportunities uh, produced. So I, I, I would like to say that just to say that the concept is, is changing, but uh, what we try to do in Nick.br is to track all, all these this aspects. So, uh, we we generally uh, divide all the indicators in access indicators is whether people are or are not connected, what type of connection, what type of and uh, in, in what places they use, and in which organizations have the, the internet and the connection. We are also uh, worried about the, the what type of uses because uh, even when even when people are connected, there are inequalities on what type of uses they can manage online. And, and this is very important to, to see the results in the end. And finally, the idea of appropriation and skills, which is important to understand what how people can benefit from, from the online engagement. So 
uh, all, all the all, all the surveys that we have are, are nation, nation are collected in Brazil. They are fully available online, and they have uh, quite the, this structure of measuring not just measuring infrastructure or uh, if if people have uh, fiber optics or, or stuff like that, but also to understand what type of uses what what people do online and how can they benefit from being online. And from uh, from your perspective, uh, so how do, would you say that is uh, Brazil has uh, is in digitalization right now? We are still too much depending on mobile devices, or uh, we are more connected. Because I think I think in terms of time connected, Brazil is like one of the top 10, top one, uh, top three. Uh, I don't know exactly which place it is, but we Brazilians, we stay a lot of time connected since always. And, uh, but from other things, uh, how we would describe that is the scenario of digitalization based on uh, the data that you you gather um, in, in, in uh, CITIC. Yeah, I think Brazil is a, is a quite interesting case because uh, I, I in my research, I usually call this uh, what I call an unequal inclusion because we do have inclusion. If you, if you take, we, we, we came from uh, almost nobody online to nowadays we have uh, 152 million people connected. It's not, it's not a small amount of people. It's, it's, it's more than uh, several countries in, in terms of people online in, in Brazil. So uh, I think it's important to, to see this process or very fast and dynamic inclusion which was based on, on an interesting model of, of spread of the internet in the country or, or in, in a, a society that, that is quite interested in being online and it's very active online and, and moves fast in, in this term. But at the same time, we have a huge inequality, still a huge inequality in, in access, such as in, in Amazon, region or, or uh, rural areas this is still a uh, place in brazil so if you go to older people from uh, low socioeconomic backgrounds and low level of education you will see uh, people disconnected so this is important to mention but because of the pandemic we saw a very huge increase in, in online activities being online including for poor people, because if you, if you go to uh, what the government did to support people during the COVID, the transfers, the, the fi financial transfers that were did, they were, they were primarily did by the internet, via app and mobile apps, and in, in a very fast way. So I think the, I, I would say that the case of Brazil is very interesting because it's, it's a huge country with a, with a huge amount of internet users, but a huge inequalities in, in what people do online and can do online, depending on all those those social backgrounds that I that I've mentioned. And uh, Benedict, it would be interesting to uh, to get your point of view on how you see uh, the digitalization in Germany, especially in this moment. So of course, if you if you would ask a uh, hundred people uh, that question, then probably ninety would say the situation is bad. <laughs> So it's, it's pretty common to complain about digitalization in Germany. So the administration is not digital, uh, sufficiently digital. Uh, we don't have any large purely digital companies compared uh, to the American or Chinese economy. So, and of course there is something to it, right? 
But on the other hand, I would say the picture is maybe not as black or dark as it is painted sometimes. So first of all, um, we have, I think, quite some talent here in, in Germany in terms of students. That, that's at least what I can, can see every day in my job. We have very interesting uh, startups with very good uh, business ideas. I think, for instance, in terms of the economy, so venture capital funding is situation is improving in Germany. And we also see um, substantial efforts by the government, both the past one and the, the current one, to improve the digitalization of the administration. And of course, uh, this takes time, maybe, um, but I'm a little guessing here, the German engineering tradition is a little bit at cross with the development of digital products and services, which is more in terms of trial and error, um, establish um, minimum viable products very quickly and test them in the market. Um, that's obviously not the way an administration works. So. And that's not the way you would construct a car usually. So maybe that's why we have some, some problems in, in adapting to this. In terms of society, um, because I think that's also important. I mean, we, we had this discussion of a digital divide quite for a while, but by now in Germany, we are there. I mean, we still have some problems with infrastructure too. Uh, and that's something I think is really annoying uh, and, and wouldn't be necessary. But we're nearing, or we have above 90% of the people um, being online. And I think the number uh, is growing and the infrastructure is improving. So the digital divide, I think, is more by now more an international phenomenon um, between different countries, specifically uh, when comparing um, industrial uh, countries with the global south so there are um, larger differences here in terms of uh, who's connected um, i think that we have in education which is also a very important part of of the society we still have uh, to make up in, in in progress in terms of how we both the education itself becomes digitalized as well as how we educate students to deal with digitalization to understand digitalization understand digital um, products and services um, so yeah there is i see a lot of progress usually we are we are rather cautious at some stages for instance regarding digital voting during elections or something like that we're more uh, we're not pressing hard in in this direction i would say but that also has its merits, I think, at, at some stages. And overall, um, my last point in the EU, uh, we by now see these, um, yeah, these strong effort to regulate also the, the digital sphere, both the public sphere, um, governmental issues, but also the economy. That's kind of, yeah, a unique value proposition, I would say, comparing to the um, American, both North and South American models, maybe as well as to the to the Chinese um, model and the way we build our digital um, economy and infrastructure. But I'm I'm not sure if it's really the superior way. I just say it it also has some value, and we will see how it how it plays out.
I think you were the first specialist, a German specialist who doesn't sell, who doesn't say something in uh, the, right in the beginning about privacy. Do you think that uh, private privacy, the fear of re, uh, not having too much privacy or the fear of uh, cautious about their private, do you think this is also a, a barrier to digitalization to, or to adoption of some technologies? I'm not a sociologist, right? So I don't want to make uh, wrong assumptions here. Of course, the German history, we have had really bad experiences with the state, uh, with surveillance by the government. So that, and I think this, this is likely, this likely plays a role in terms of how you, how you view um, such matters. And I think there's also evidence that privacy for the overall population is, is more important uh, maybe over here than it is in other countries. We also saw this uh, very nicely, um, for instance, when we had the discussion around the development of a, a distance tracking app, a social contact tracing app. Uh, so in, in Germany, in the end, we had a very privacy aware solution, um, which of course has the merit that more people are willing to adopt it because they don't have to fear that there will be kind of location profiles of them accumulated somewhere which could be hacked or or even sold um, and on the other hand of course it limits the what the technologies can do and maybe it's also less effective than a less privacy safe option. but um, so yeah i would say this is a value that's very strong here in I mean, also in Europe, we have the GDPR, a privacy regulation, which I think is um, rather state of the art worldwide. But we now can observe that other um, countries are following uh, these concepts and adopting a lot of, of what has been established here. And of course, a GDPR is uh, far from perfect. Um, if you visit websites from from like uh, out of Europe, then you're often shown all these cookie banners. Um, that's probably not the really best solution to handle uh, privacy questions. But at least it it's making people aware that uh, their data can be tracked, and that's I think something that's really important. Um, I'm not a huge Apple supporter, but uh, Steve Jobs put it nicely when he said privacy is that uh, you tell people what happens to their data uh, and that you do this ongoingly, right? So you make them aware what happens with the data that is gathered about you. So, um, and that's, I think, just a thing that's fair to do. And obviously there are organizations um, that are interested in in gathering data without people being aware but i think it it it's it's better for society overall if we know what's going on and what's happening just to mention uh, brazil was one of the countries that uh implemented a really similar uh legislation to the dpr i i remember studying the lgpd which is okay. exactly the same letters but in portuguese and um well, I remember finding a lot of similarities, and this was one or two years after uh, Germany uh, has implemented. So it was it was interesting to see the same law into completely different contexts. Fabio, uh, assuming this subject, uh, do you think that uh, the researchers capture uh, 
something about the researchers in uh, uh, NCTIC? Do you think that they capture something about um, privacy uh, issues? I mean, do you think that citizens are in Brazil are considering this issue or they are more looking for other things? Yeah, I think th this, is a, this is a very difficult issue to uh, research, in, especially in quantitative surveys, because it's a, it's a very uh, broad and, and difficult concept to translate into personalizing to uh, really good questions that you can track. But I, I would say that in the case of Brazil, if, if you see the, the data of internet usage, you see that uh, Brazilians are, are very... Uh, attracted and and they, and they like I, I think they like the they when they can they they are very they have this disposition to be online and to connecting in online platforms so if you see the, our rates of presence in in social social media or using voice calls or uh, if you take instant messaging how uh, brazilian really even if you if you take the 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 poor the poor population so well, the stratification of usage uh, comes when you when you analyze more sophisticated uh, uses like online courses or financial transactions but when it comes to very general platforms the brazilians are very yeah, interested in, in in to to get into this this issue so for one side, uh, this de this debate on privacy is still ongoing. Of course, our uh, our law uh, still is in in the, the phase of implementation, so we still don't do not have yet quite the results of what what will happen because of the implementation of the law. But the, the survey we have we had on CETIC, especially in the con context of COVID, was that. Uh, in, in a sense, uh, uh, Brazilians uh, have, have, have they recognize privacy or or security problems when um, mainly when they have something to they 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 have some some case of losing money or have a fraud or or a bank account uh, uh, hacked or something. So th these these are the main concerns and and not what we uh, used to in the discussion consider privacy. So I, I do think that this is still not uh, fully uh, an issue in, in the whole society. You know, how how to how the data is used, how the, the data is processed and used by the platforms. This is still an ongoing debate, and and I think it, it will be tends to be more important in the, in the future than than used to be in the past. And nowadays, I think the, the debate is too, is too much concerned with frauds and and, and and security online and not just the idea of of not having your data used in a way that you don't you don't you don't want to use and, and stuff like that so and uh, this is my first perspective of, of this case this is this is interesting because um this shows also that uh, some cases from personal data that was gathered by outright politicians also. Yeah, I remember this case. I was still living in Brazil. This was in 2019 before the pandemics. And there was already uh, some profiles of people that would be activists. And it's curious to see that. It's not even a judgment. It's just, just I'm curious to see that. I find it interesting to see that. Even with these cases, this is not uh, something that the society uh, thinks too much. 
especially consider all the debates in, uh, in, in terms of enabling rights, as you mentioned before, that internet provides us and all the discussions that we see online about uh, some basic rights, some civil rights, and in the same time, yeah. it's like two parallel worlds, right? Yeah, no, and, and I think I think this is this is an, an interesting issue of inequality that I think it's important because uh, if you, if you if you take just the number of internet users, if you compare Brazil and Germany, we are not quite so different in terms of percentage of people in a way connected to the internet. So, but when it comes to to social inequalities, you you, you start to see that, for instance, in Brazil. When you go to lower uh, status users, they are basically using mobile phones. They don't have access to any computer or tablets or, or other devices. They are basically online through mobile phones with, with uh, packages that the data packages that allow them to do very basic stuff. And that's why the platforms use zero rating strategies to 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 make uh, people use. Uh, instant messaging and, and social networks. So, I think I think this is important because this this is the most the most vulnerable population is online to very precarious ways of connection, and they 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 more vulnerable also to disinformation and into into the circulation of bad information, and they even don't have a very good connectivity for checking this if there is information right and, and to engage in other types of engagement online so this is important because it's not anymore the case of not being online or being or not being the case is what what type of how being online is meaningful to your to your life and if you are able to critically understand what your your data and what are the content that you are sharing and receiving online so this is where education and skills and, and media literacy, this is where this, all, all these this more social ag agendas of understanding of, of digital comes. So this, so I think this is interesting because it's this type of disinformation and misuse of data affects primarily people that are more vulnerable. And, and those, in, in the case of Brazil, are the ones that don't have quite a, a very good access to, to the internet. Yeah, I think there, there are some very interesting points. So because I didn't think of it by now in terms of uh, education and, and or um, let's say social status and, and access, but I, but, I would, uh, but I would fully agree. Um, although it's not, it's also not my uh, deeper expertise here in this field, but I think that shows us also again, the, the importance of education. So, um, I mean, digitalization and as one very prominent phenomenon of digitalization, the World Wide Web, it's basically like a, like a wonderland, right? And if you just send people in there without any guidance, I'm, of course, they get attracted by, by offerings or by people that may not have their, their best of their customers in, in interest, right? So... I think it's important that you that we kind of get to a point where we educate people about how um, certain digital business models work, what certain organizations want, especially if you get something for free, how you can deal with information. I mean, there's always two sides to the metal. The, 
the amount of information that you have access to just by using a mobile phone today, it's incredible. It exceeds anything that we could even imagine uh, 30 years ago. And you can pretty much access any news website in the world. And unless there's a paywall, you can read, you have access to public information. But of course, all this comes with the downside that people with bad intentions or different intentions uh, make use of this um, for their advantage and, and pull out fake news, misinformation. And therefore it's more important, I think, than before that we educate people about how to tell the difference between the good and the bad to simplify here a little bit. Well, I'm going to change a little bit the subject, um, talking more about um, going going back to to uh, digitalization uh, and and the, the the view of processes. Uh, so there is a tendency, and higher and higher tendency to uh, automizing uh, decision making process. So, uh, and recently there is a, a big debate uh, regarding how those algorithms that are made to make decisions are created. So for those who doesn't, uh, who might be listening to us and don't necessarily understand what I say is that the algorithm is going to take a decision based and decisions that was, were uh, made in the past. So it would have a database of what it was decided from a specific situation and this algorithm will uh, take a decision space and these are decisions in the past which were made by humans uh, with their intention and non-intentional bias. So uh, there was a, there is going on a large uh, ethical debate and I would like to know if uh, in your perspective, um, from Benedict and from Fabio, if this ethical debate impacts the extension of implementation of those algorithms or decision-making, uh, automatized decision-making systems, and if you if you would say that governments and companies are now more careful, or if this debate is still going on only on civil society and didn't reach this uh, the spheres that would implement those algorithms. Yes, I would say this debate is uh, very important. It's very uh, lively, which is also important. And I would say it affects the decisions to implement uh, such algorithms. There, it's really a multifaceted issue and, and difficult to, to, to grasp in a short time. But obviously, um, one of the problems if we talk about decision making is usually what we try to, there are different interests, of course, from if we are an organization, then we are mostly interested in, in making profit. From a societal perspective, we are looking for some kind of fairness when we make decisions. Um, and even, even the fairness concept, there are many ideas of what fairness actually can mean. And it's uh, difficult to, to implement um, these various aspects or to identify, okay, what are we actually optimizing our decision-making for? Now, I think automated decision-making can be advantages 
over human decision making and that it at least theoretically is able to eradicate some human biases right so of course humans are not perfectly fair decision makers or profit uh, optimizing decision makers themselves and automated decision making might have offered the opportunity to get some improvement in these dimensions. Of course, if you build the systems that make these decisions by training them by past decisions of humans, then you cannot expect any kind of improvement here in, in these terms because what they will do is they will replicate what humans in the past have done in the future. So I think that is something rather obvious. So what we, and that's um, basically computer science, what we have to look at is how we may be able to improve the decision making by maybe comparing to what human performance has been in the past and how we can yeah, get a little bias in these human decisions. And we always say bias in the data, but the data, it's mostly created by, um, by recording what humans have done or decided, at least in this case. So um, we have to think about ways how we can eradicate this and we have to What's important and also much discussed the issue of transparency, we have to detect where whether bias in decision making occurs or not. And based on this information, we have to clearly decide whether the current uh, technological progress is sufficiently good to allow to implement this decision making. Um, for various decisions, for instance, for credit default scoring, for the decisions to um, release prisoners early on or um, to convict them in the first place. So these are very important uh, decisions that affect humans' lives ex extensively. And of course, unless we cannot understand how these decisions are in the end made, I think we should be very careful. In, in applying them or in automating them. However, we always should, have, should be aware that uh, humans are not perfect in making these decisions either. So it's really multifaceted problem. Oh, I'm, I'm thinking here um, in this debate, what I think is really interesting is how can we control that, right? Because in some cases it's really obvious that it should be transparency. So we, if we are talking about the justice systems applying the penalties or uh, surveillance in digital cameras, uh, public digital cameras, which is happening, uh, which happens in, um, in the subway in Brazil. This is a quite obvious, uh, obvious places where automated decision-making should be looked. But at the same time, all the businesses in many models are creating ways to, to automatize that. And it's 
it's interesting that um, I, I never saw so far a discussion about, so there is a lot of discussion about creating data teams inside of, of businesses, but I never saw a discussion. Well, I, I might be not informed about it and that's okay, I, but I don't say that I know everything, but so far I haven't seen any discussion of creating a kind of ombudsman, for example, or something that would not, I would, I don't want to say regulate, but uh, pay attention to these ethical issues that automatizing this kind of decision uh, process should, should bring. And if, uh, Benedict, you talked, for example, about credit, uh, this is, this is a, a good example of a system that is highly automatized in every place in Brazil is all, also the, the credit score. And, and sometimes we have a roughly idea of how this works, but, and, it, and, and it affects the lives of many people. Nah, especially people who are more vulnerable. So it's it's interesting that I haven't seen so far a discussion about this. Uh, although the the and and how to control transparency of uh, private companies, right? Uh, there is uh, Daniel Trielli. He is a researcher. Uh, he used to work in Estadão in Brazil, and now he is a PhD candidate at Northwestern University. And he has this amazing uh, project called Algorithm Tips. And in this project, he um, supervisor, which I'm sorry, I forgot his name uh, of the supervisors. They investigate all the all the algorithms used by the U.S. government in national level. And it, he said uh, in a Congress, in a Brazil Congress in 2019, he was mentioning that, okay, we, we reached a point that the government was hiring those companies uh, to run these algorithms. And well, actually they were um, outsourcing the, the a service and the service was doing, uh, was the, the, the company was using uh, Tomat uh, decision-making process, okay. But then they would say, okay, how did you make this um, decision? And they say, well, this is a, a private secret. This is a private business. So it's, it's interesting to see these layers because some things are really obvious, but the others are not so obvious. Yeah, yeah. and I think what, what is quite new uh, in terms of what we had in the past, I think one, one issue that is very uh, different is that the, the fact that you raised that even if you are offline, if you don't have really quite good connection, you are affected by this because you, you can no longer be out of this. Because we used to have the idea when we talk about digital inclusion that there are people out of the, the internet or offline or disconnected. But nowadays, if you, if you take a bus in a, in a huge city, if you, if you have online cameras and, and other stuff, you have the school system connected using algorithms and you have health. So it is, I think nowadays it is impossible to say that who is out and who is in because everybody in a sense affected by this. But at the same time, as, as Benedict mentioned, the data we have is, is, is biased by inequality. So in, in a sense that of course, uh, what, what are the implications, for instance, in terms of thinking about governments to use in an African country a, a, a platform trained by data in, for European data? So how, how, what, are, what, are, what are really the implications of training those, those algorithms with data that we know that are biased by uh, those that are more connected and, and online? So what, what are the implications 
even for consumption and, and credit to, to use data that of those that are really can uh, do online financial transactions and, and stuff like that. So I, I think this is interesting. So in a sense that everybody is affected, but is affected in, in different ways, depending on, on the bias on, on the data we, we have in place. I'm going to uh, jump to our next, our last question, actually, because our time is almost up. And uh, talking about a little bit of the future, <laughs> or I don't know, the present or the future, or uh, it's, it's hard to say. Um, I, I bring the discuss of the metaverse, especially because we're discussing a lot of NFTs. So actually my motivation about asking you uh, about the metaverse is more due to all the discussion of NFTs that we had last year than actually that I know people who have been using uh, uh, this kind of technology. I don't actually know many people. So I would say, I would ask you how really quickly, if it's possible uh, from Benedict, for Benedict and also for Fabio, how do you see this scenario of using metaverse in next years? Do you think that is actually something that companies and citizens will migrate Uh, to this platform and spend a, a time online in this way. I'm, I'm not talking about video games because I think this is this is one specific area and it has its own development. But talking about more broadly how our society is going to live, do you think metaverse is actually something that will uh, be a reality for us in a few years? This, this is interesting because I'm I'm really of course we don't have yet research on that, but people because this is a something to to come but i would say by by the evidence we have because we track uses of the internet before the the social media and then the web 2.0 and, and nowadays all, all the other developments I, i would say that if if we have a trend in all those uh, uh, process of adoption is a trend of also of course inequalities in in, in people uh, being the first uh, adopters and, and coming later the the later adopters which are usually those with with less conditions to to that so we need to track this on, on, on this case i think what what is different is that of course there's a huge potential because uh, as as we, we already already mentioned we have much more people online and connect to in a sense to to digital technologies but i still think that we need, we need to see how this is going to be implemented and rise in countries like brazil where at the same time we have very uh, a, a very a gaming industry that is very active and rich. At the same time, we have uh, people that have very precarious and limited connections. So I don't think everybody will be in, in, in a minute uh, using those type of, of technologies, but I do think there's a potential for adoption that we need to, to track. And I can say more than, than that. Let me first answer to your NFT aspect. So I think as far as I have understood NFTs, <laughs> The idea of creating ownership on a of a unique digital object is interesting because so far everything digital was kind of abundant because you could easily copy it and that also like created problems. I, we, I started by talking about media monetization, so that is especially difficult uh, in, in this case. So having kind of unique digital objects that you can assign ownership to somebody is is basically interesting 
it creates scarcity and scarcity is obviously an important driver in 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 the economy so um i would say this is an interesting concept i i cannot predicting about digital technologies is something where you can only lose so i don't know how it will turn out i'm i would guess that there are interesting applications for this like we currently see in art for instance um and i probably i you could imagine more um so yes i would say that's that's an interesting concept um regarding the metaverse and i know it's uh, these concepts are also connected um when thinking of a metaverse as a virtual world in which you can um immerse in our studies on virtual reality we found out that people generally like what they perceive when they make use of of virtual reality applications it's kind of a cool experience but it's also still very cumbersome in terms of the hardware right you have to wear these huge goggles um it easily causes nausea um you cannot with with many of these um, hardware um, or head mounted displays as you call them you cannot move freely um, or at least not fully and yeah i'm not i mean the hardware will probably uh, become better and better and i could imagine that once this happens more and more people would be willing to to engage in such a thing i could imagine that it's more that it's not a fully digital work, but world, but maybe more enhancing or a mix. We are um, virtual reality, augmented reality, somehow uh, mixed with our real world perceptions. So I think there are interesting um, applications for this. Um, yeah, let's see how it how it turns out. Well, uh, yeah, I don't expect no one to <laughs> to actually make a, a strong prov uh, um, provision of how it's going to be. But I think it was a really interesting topic that at least I need to make one question for you, enjoying the fact that you're here. Uh, so our time is unfortunately up. Uh, I would like to thank uh, Fabio Seni and Benedict Berger for joining us today. Thank you, Fabio, for uh, giving us this time. Thank you. Yeah, I really like to enjoy talking to you and thanks for the invitation. And also thank you, Benedict Berger, for being with us today. Yeah, thank you, Jessica. Thank you, Fabio, and all the, the team in the background for making this happen. It was a pleasure. So uh, Data Talks is a series of talks between experts from Brazil and Germany who discuss the use of public data in today's society and also the metaverse. Uh, the Data Talks is an initiative from myself, Jessica Vogt, as a part of the German Chancellor Fellowship from the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation, and is hosted and supported by the Brazil Center of the University of Münster in the framework of the strategic partnership project VVU.USP, funded by the DAD. This is the last episode, so I would like to give a special thanks to our executive team, uh, Kate Cari dos Santos from the Brazil Center of the University of Münster, and Juliana Reja, our technical support and editor who assisted us in all our episodes. I would also like to thank uh, Mrs. Anya Greco and Professor Dr. Bernd Hellingrath, who believed in this project and actually made all of this possible. Thank you very much, um, and I see you 
all in a next opportunity.